0: You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. <laughs> I'm JR Hi, I'm Matt And I'm Simon Is there something you two want to get off your chests? What? <sighs> yeah Star Trek? Yeah, are we allowed to talk? No, but go ahead
1: We both watched the first episode of Star Trek We don't yes. know what each other thinks Yeah, there there are two episodes being released I didn't know they were going yes. to do two episodes Oh really? No, okay Right, one of them's free
0: one of them you have to pay for
1: This is on Netflix
0: It's so on I'm Netflix, it on so Netflix. we pay anyway Right, but I'm talking about in America where it's oh yeah. okay yeah in America the first one's free the second one you have to pay for it's a bit cruel it is a bit cruel that's not the spirit of the federation that's a two part <laughs> that's a two part opening episode yeah. right? Mm. so they're giving you half a story for free and making you pay for the second half of the story that sounds like a good marketing technique
2: <laughs> but it's well, not in the spirit of the federation <laughs> yeah, it market.
0: depends does the first half of the story make you want to pay for the second half? No, not for me. F-
2: I will watch the second half, but I wouldn't pay for it, I don't
1: think. I don't know. I don't know whether I would. I don't... Mm. I, I. Do you know what? I would want to watch it well, to first- see if it did different things. Yes. The first half ended on a source less to do with but it was difficult st- to tell. Less to do with the story and more to do with wanting to see how the series pans out.
0: Well, yeah, they're expecting people to want to pay for it because it's Star Trek. Yeah. Right? So I
1: was I was underwhelmed
2: by by the script of it. Yes, agreed. And the story and the pacing of it. Yes. But with the caveat that I understand that they may be trying to do a however long an eight episode story.
0: Mm. Twenty two.
2: So no, it's not twenty two, it's a short version, I think. No, no I'm not going full bone. Sure 22. I read it was twenty two. I think it's Swiss a limited series. it's a limited miniseries. Really?
0: I could be wrong. I swear I read it was twenty two. Okay.
2: This episode a week, isn't it? I'm not sure I could handle twenty two parts of this. I could handle <laughs> if it was eight out to ten or maybe twelve, yeah. and it told one story. Then I can I can accept that the first episode isn't a good representation mm. of the whole thing.
0: I heard the first three episodes form a story. After right. which, well, I don't know after which what, but after which I'm assuming it goes to story of the week, like regular right. Star Trek. Okay. Right. But the script is terrible.
2: The script was that opening, the the cold opening.
0: Mm.
1: It
2: was just two characters, like
1: telling each other what they already know, so we can
2: understand it. it. It's yeah. Just
1: expository. Yeah, and it it was kind of doing that whole kind of wasn't doing techno babble quite. No, it was, it was it was close.
2: Yes, and the the cliffhanger of the cold open relied on you knowing relied on a symbol of Star Trek rather than so a oh, J, J.J. Sh- Abrams. Sh- was,
1: blah, blah, blah. That's what?
2: a lovely. It's it's lovely, but it's not. It didn't like.
1: Oh, I thought it gave uh, that me gave me chills. Really? Yeah. It didn't give me chills. I, I tell you what, design... did give me the chills was yeah. the credits. The credits are beautiful. I they were but boring. the music's terrible, isn't it? I thought it was all right. Oh god, anything's an improvement on Enterprise. I like Enterprise. I don't know, Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> Dreadful music on Enterprise.
2: I said, I thought that was quite different. At least it wasn't that kind of it,
1: yeah that different
2: kind of bland
1: sort of orchestrated, sort of ponderous stuff. This one is a bit more...
0: I, mean, I, I don't, don't want to
1: hear what's on the radio on Star Trek, though. That's the thing with that Enterprise. I don't...
2: Maybe, but it gave it a bit of, more of a sense of place. It did get. It okay. did feel like a yep. sort of earlier version. Okay, so it just could have been a better song. Not that I like the series particularly. Maybe I'm not the right mm. person to
1: be watching Star <laughs> my, Trek. My, 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 the thing I love about Star Trek, more than anything, is the characters. And that was... I don't know. I mean, I think they're. Tr- I think they're trying. I think I like the. Well,
0: I like- spoiler alert! You know, only two of these characters continue into the series. That's right. That's,
2: yeah. But I like that. So the Star Trek works for the characters, but it's actually, it's because the characters are dysfunctional and they're trapped on a spaceship. Mm. It's because they shouldn't get along, but they learn how to get along. So it's about Picard and Riker, or it's about Data and the rest of the crew, mm. or it's about mm-hmm. Spock and, and Bones. These characters kind of didn't have any... There was hints of that with the Doug Jones...
1: There's a lack of humour as well, which... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know it's only the first episode, but it should be there in that first episode. Especially after...
2: I mean, the J.J.
1: Abrams movies,
2: sort of... I mean, they're not universally liked, but they had a sort of sense of
1: humour. They did, absolutely. worked really well. The human element, which is the whole big thing with Star Trek, isn't it? And this kind of just felt a little bit aseptic. Yeah. But I have to say the design work and yeah. the filming and everything yeah. is utterly gorgeous. The, oh, That's crazy. not what you expect from Star Trek though, is it? It's not what you expect. So I think, I, so So this is show run by... All, and I actually like the new Klingons.
2: This was started by Brian Fuller who's who did Hannibal and various other things um, but particularly Hannibal and Hannibal looks fantastic. It's got a really distinctive sense of style and mm. I wonder if the good things about this, the style and... There's sort of the Egyptology that they bring to the Klingons as well. Mm-hmm. There's sort of hints of that. I wonder if that's Brian Fuller. And the, sc- is... the rest of the script and the pacing, maybe that's... Because it's also co-written by Brian Fuller and the guy that wrote the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. So, oh, God, please so no. I, wonder, I didn't know that. I wonder if it... Yeah, the Akiva first one's good.
1: Akiva. That's the only film I it fall is asleep is. in every time. Or oh, the first Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah.
0: Oh, the first Pirates of the Caribbean, it's an excellent and
1: eggs. yeah, I love the, the rest bit, of them. Are the Jack Sparrow comes in on the end of the ship, and then it all it all becomes very dark. So,
2: so I like the first Pirates of Caribbean,
0: but this is... this draws more from
2: that that Pirates of the Caribbean, where it's just focuses
0: on Johnny. If you Jets don't give me a space, while. I won't be able to get my punchline out. And by the it. time I get my punchline out, it'll be too bloody <laughs> okay. late. Okay, gone. Is it is this set in space, or does some of it take place on full Earth? So. So that's my theory: is that
2: the Brian Fuller stuff is the the, the strong stuff, but because yeah. he backed out to do something else okay. during the development of it, mm. that it just kind of mm. then got taken over by writing
1: Dreams. And well, I uh, might be wrong. I mean, the obvious thing is: is, is it ten years before the first Star something Trek? Something like that. Nobody's yeah. quite sure, but yeah, no, because they did actually they did they
2: did actually give the exact date. Okay, as well, at some point. Oh god, and it's going to be. Exact but the pilot point.
0: for the original series takes place. 12 years before the original series. Yeah. So, this takes place two years after the pilot yeah. for the original yeah. series.
2: Which could work.
0: Which is. Except
1: it features Spock's father. Yeah. It's got Spock's father in it. But it is a reimagining, there's no getting away from that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you can't yeah. say that slots in before it because it.
0: To be honest, don't you have to? Do you I think, think you know all the to. other I start? think, yeah. I I think, think that's to a, good a degree. Th- I think
2: that's a good thing. I think it's are two. They're too tied up
0: with. It's been too long, anyway. The, when was the last? When did the last Star Trek on TV finish? Eighty seven or something? No, no. Oh uh, and... Wh- What? What do you mean? One of the Enter- Oh, sorry, series. no. Um... Yeah, yeah. I don't know when Enterprise finished. Was it's it two thousand and something?
1: No, yeah.
2: it was two thousands. It was just before. It was a couple of years before the first, um, the first JJ Abrams Oh yeah, movie. of course. So and that was so mid two thousand mid nineties.
0: 2009? So, really? Yeah. Star Trek finished as late as that? Didn't yeah.
2: It? yeah. Well, they yeah. just sort of chain-smoked the series. Just as one was coming to the end, they started the
1: next one. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, yeah, visually yeah. And, and the package was, yeah. I thought it was quite sexy.
2: Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. It did look good, but mm-hmm. it looked kind of, I'll have to see. I'm, I like what they did with the Klingons. I like the, the idea that they're going to develop that. Mm. There's slightly dodgy politics in it as well. Because the hero in the first episode seems to be advocating, for right reasons, sort of preemptive strikes, yeah. just as just as Trump accidentally declares war on North Korea. Yeah. So you get the feeling this might be Star Trek for the Trump era, mm. which is worrying. But
0: I'm sure they'll address that. Mm. Well, they we might not because well, I don't know. We don't know how long it's been in development, been written, mm. and Trump is happening as we speak, isn't he? Yeah. Um, we are convened this evening to talk about the top 10 Doctor Who villains, as voted for by the listeners of our podcast who go on our Facebook page and vote in these things. Matt will be pleased to know. That's I have... quite a good segue from Trump, wasn't it? Yeah. Really? Was it? Yeah, as in villains. okay. Because uh, I've been doing top Trumps all week, so yeah, that's been even weirder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> that's that's the card game, not. Uh... <clears throat> I should do well, leaders, set, shouldn't I? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why would I be pleased?
0: Because there is a percentage system going, so okay, we can see good. the spread as well as the positions. Good. I shall say no more than that. Okay. Um, I got to say, John Sims' master didn't get a single vote from anybody. Oh,
2: I thought I voted for him. Oh, I must have been mistaken.
0: You were mistaken because you voted for Peter Pratt.
2: Yes, I like Peter Pratt's master. He's got a distinctive. He's got a distinctive motivation. He looks really cool. It's got a particular performance. He's not got much character. <clears throat> no, even the master doesn't have much character. I mean, that's not. And a lot of the, I mean, Tech the destroyer doesn't have much character. We'll get on to him. We might. Yeah. <laughs> In fairness, having lots of character isn't. Isn't going to be an issue, but if they've got
0: sill, slight idea, sill, yeah, that's true. From the nineteen yeah. eighties, yeah, got that's one funny. last place vote from oh. one person. Really, I'm he got quite Thought I mean, he was shocked about that. Mm. I thought sill would, I thought sill was a top ten for sure. It's going to be coloured. Was it you voted for sill <clears> then? <throat> no. Oh. Mm. Um, I, f- I didn't get a chance to uh, put down the comments that people had written because there are a lot more this time. If anybody wants to see the comments, they're on our Facebook page under the thread. Um, the Rani and the Valeyard both got two points, so either somebody voted them second bottom or two people voted them bottom. But again, that's quite low, for, especially for the so Rani. Both members of the Rani Revival Group. The two Rani's. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's it. But there is going to be a lot.
1: Oh, that was a joke waiting to happen. I, am I the last person to hear that joke? The two rownies. Yeah.
0: Yes, you're the very last person to hear oh, that my. joke. Oh,
1: wow. Was that a joke?
0: Um, it was a joke about 10 years ago, probably 20. Oh, I only, I only got back into fandom in 2005. That's there's still 12 years ago.
1: There's um, going to be a
2: lot here coloured by the stories that are in. There <clears> must be.
0: Cause, yes,
2: but... Because memorable villains and memorable stories tend to get tied together.
0: Well, there are about three or four that are in that are iconic villains in iconic stories mm. that are always going to end up at the top. Yeah, But beyond that, you'd actually be surprised. When I was doing the You and Who books, mm. one of the things that sort of seemed odd to me, but then eventually made perfect sense, was the amount of people who absolutely adore the 80s, because that's when they grew up.
2: yes. Yeah if, yeah, if I was writing about the 80s, then I'd be really positive about it. If I was choosing something, villains, then I'd mostly think of the 70s. I
0: know uh, that you wouldn't if you grew up in the 80s, you'd think of the 80s first and foremost. I did grow up in the 80s. But you weren't watching Doctor Who in the 80s. I was watching Doctor Who in the 80s. Well, at what point?
2: I watched Doctor Who from City of Death in 79 until, okay. until Survival.
0: Right, but what a, the point I'm making yes, is, yeah, 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 yeah. For a lot yeah, of people, yeah. the yeah. ones that you watch when you're six, seven, eight are yeah. the ones that stay with you. Yeah. Even if you see those other ones afterwards, mm. so somebody like Sill, I mean, I know somebody who's always forever banging on about his love for the Twin Dilemma. Right. Right. Yeah. So is. If, even if you think Sill was in two-week stories, which well, isn't necessarily the case.
2: Yeah, so I I like I like Keeper of Tarkin for that reason, because, because it scared the hell out of me when I was a child. But, again, I can't How see. come you didn't vote for Beavers over Pratt, then? Because I didn't like Beavers, because it, it, he, he he's not the thing that stung, stood out for me from Keeper of Tarkin. It was the Melker that stood out for me. It's and the same master, the
0: though. Mm. I said when well, you was voting, you were voting for the character and not the actor who was playing. So them. Beavers and Pratt is the same one. Yes.
2: Yeah. I disputed whether Pratt and Delgado were the same one.
0: Well, according on to Terence Dix, they are.
2: Terence Dix didn't write, wasn't involved in. He didn't write Deadly Assassin, and he wasn't script editor at the time.
0: No, but he created so it, that master, respect, and he worked with Robert Holmes.
2: He created the the Peter Pratt master.
0: No, the Delgado master.
2: I'm talking about the Peter Pratt master.
0: Yes, but you're disputing whether Peter Pratt is the same master as Delgado. Yes. Well, i actually,
2: sticks... actually I'm, I'm saying there's no, there's nothing in the series that says that he is, and he looks <clears throat> completely different, played by a different person, and is featured well, the master just... at the end of his final regeneration. There's a sort of an Occam Razor approach that says at some point, Delgado's master was regenerated several times, and this is the master at the end of his regenerations. There's nothing. Oh well, no. Ma- Delgar- John
0: Stick said that Roger Delgado was the last regeneration. Well,
2: I didn't, well, I haven't. I don't know where he said that. When did he say that?
0: Well, he says it in the novel of the Deadly
2: Assassin. Okay. I'm, I just watched the Deadly Assassin. Okay. That's, that's what I was
0: going by. Right. When I, when I well, I did my, did my homework. homework. <laughs> oh, okay. <clears throat> Anyway, the uh, Pratt and Beavers masters, even with somebody else yeah. voting for them, still oh, ended okay. up outside okay. the top ten. Okay.
1: The thing is, I, I grew 80s up with Doctor Who through the 80s and watched the same, pretty much the same period as you, probably, well, uh, yeah, Destiny the Daleks.
0: Yes, up yeah. To then.
1: yeah. Uh, but I don't <clears> think I would attach anything to any of the villains apart from affection. Like, Sil is great, and I'm surprised more people didn't vote, but I still think there's more stronger villains. So sort the of villainy is quite a, a particular thing. Mm. And the 70s were... One
2: of the best and weakest things about the 70s is they were about arch-villains. So that, that, but no, that
0: mid-70s period. Yeah, only for about three years. Yeah. Actually, if you look at the 1980s, a lot of the things like characterization of villains is probably stronger in the 80s than it was in the 70s. Yeah. It's just that the stories are weaker. Yeah. Which, when you're being asked to vote on a villain... I mean, I would have thought people would say, well, okay, I'm not too fond of maybe Mind War, but still, still lives in the memory, and he's the best thing in it. Mm. And the Rani as well. Time Lord villains have been looming large in Doctor Who ever since the Time Meddler. So you've got not a great deal of them, but they are peppered throughout the history. Yeah, and, ever since the Doctor, really. Certainly in that first episode. Oh, well, but... Or well, the second episode. Yeah. Third Third, fourth episode. First story. Yeah, all through that story. Yeah. I don't quite know. So, but, but by the time you get to the Rani, you're actually getting a sort of Time Lord villain who's not as two-dimensional as, say, the Master. The Master was... Con- I mean in Roger Delgado's performance, as I'm sure we'll talk about, he brings him to life, but as conceived on paper, the master's a pretty two-dimensional villain. Yeah. And the meddling monk, brought to life by Peter Butterworth, again, I'm sure we'll get to talk about that, but as conceived on paper, there's not a great deal there. But the Rani, actually, as played by Kate O'Mara, great... And on paper, also an interesting character. Much more interesting than the other two. But he only got two points. So we don't have to talk about him. No. On 2.8%, and this is still way outside the top ten, Anthony Ainley's master. Oh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of thought he might have got a little bit more as well. In joint 11th place on 6.2%, Here's two who were the war chief from oh, the war gangs, and Magnus Greel from the Talons of Wen Jian. I considered voting for Greel, but actually the, the he's be, not good. The Historious. best story is,
2: and the best villain in Talons of Wen Jian is Li Sen Chang. Mm-hmm. Magnus Greel is sort of at the point where. It we kind of Mr. goes Sin, off the boiler Mr. Mm-hmm. Sin. Although he's more a monster than a
0: Well Mr. Sin's it. more a monster and yeah. Lee Sen Chang is not
2: really quite a villain. No, but that's what makes him a the good, villain. I think, I think yeah. that's what makes him a good villain because that gives him something distinctive. That gives him that kind of
0: The trouble with of Wang Jiang is it is split between those three characters. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to mm-hmm. vote for one of those characters yeah. above the other two. That's one way you would vote for the story.
2: Yeah. rather yeah, than
0: yeah. necessarily yeah. the people in it. Mm. Do you want to know who was in <clears throat> oh actually it's joint 10th place, so Warchief and Magnus Greer went joint 11th, So we joint 12th joint 10th place on 6.9% is two Time Lord villains Omega and the Meddling Monk <coughs> oh okay. okay
2: they're quite good contrasts I mean they <clears throat> the opposite ends of the the, the villain spectrum Medling Monk's really parochial, sort of prosaic, homely
0: villain. Omega's this kind of... Operatic. And Omega's the most boring... (laughs) I'm not sure he is. I think people get that impression when they think about the story, but not necessarily when they watch it. I think there's more to Omega than a sort of fleeting memory of operatic, booming voice and all this kind of stuff. He's... The character... Not necessarily as played, but as written. His tragic character.
2: I hmm. think the character as described in the story, so they do very well at building a mythology for him. And they've done quite well in since building... Because it's... Was it Alan Moore that wrote an Omega story?
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the black, comic books? Black Sunrising, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, so they've done well in building his mythology since. But when he's actually on screen, it's not all that... You just want to watch Patrick Trouton some
0: more. Well, yeah, but that that's story. because Patrick Trouton's in it.
2: Yes, yeah, but it's also, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, he's, he's the sort of villain I think you should hear described rather than see. Well, to be honest... But you can't help but see him. You have to have some sort of representation, and this is the 1970s, so that is going to be the representation. And he only
0: turns up really towards the yeah, end of that story because yeah. it is about the three doctors and the brigadier and that finding their way to his lair Mm. he's a bit like the wizard of oz
2: maybe as a character as a villain he's great as a character
0: he's underwhelming Mm, i don't know i i i think as a character he's really interesting Mm. i just don't think you necessarily there's a this is a thing with bob baker and dave martin sometimes they'll come up with a story and they'll come up with a really interesting character and then not properly explore it so that you get hints at what's interesting rather than seeing what's interesting and maybe that's what you're getting with Omega maybe. but I don't
1: know I, I don't mean the merciless when they get um. to him isn't it really there's nothing more but that's what, than that yeah really.
2: that's what I'm saying I think that they build him up as, as this kind of conflicted god mm. and then you see him and he's just a generic mad villain and then he stops. Mm. And, but, but, I know, I know but what you also, mean. It's the also idea part, of him partly probably... the visuals and partly how he's performed and partly how
1: he's presented right at the end. Yeah. I mean, it was flashed out in my head because of the Target novel because I love the TV yeah version so much. Yeah. I went straight out and bought the book Yeah, and then read that. So it's a sort And then when it was announced that he was coming back for Ark of Infinity, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oops. Yes. <laughs> When well, actually, young, people are guessing. voting for the character, so they're also voting for Omega in Ark of Infinity. And do do mm-hmm. we not?
2: So, what's Omega like in Ark of Infinity? I mean, Ark of Infinity's a mess. Doesn't really give much out, does he? Really ugly things. But he's—is he seeking revenge on the Doctor? I can't honestly remember.
1: No. And
0: on the Time Lords. Time Lords yeah. yeah. He's hoping to use the Doctor as a tool to spring a trap on the whole of Gallifrey or something. Right. I don't Na- think launching that... his bid from Amsterdam,
1: um, <laughs> you... he was quite a good kind of Doctor Doom character, would not he? Really?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, he's obviously he was obviously a genius. Yes. So therefore, he should be far cleverer than
2: yeah any of them. But it's really. kind of appropriate that that he's a successful character through the mythology that's been built up around him because that's what his character is. It's a it's a myth, he's, <laughs> and he's invisible. Mm. So that's the whole point. It's all about the stories and he's and not actually invisible. He looks like Peter Davison. And and that's what they say. That's what they say in the story. That's what the doc, how the doctors react to him. They they're like constantly saying, oh he's a god. Oh, I'm really nervous. I'm really nervous. And then he's here mm. there and they're both sort of well there he is then. Oh he's invisible as well. There's nothing to him. There's literally nothing to him. So as when he's actually on screen maybe that's why he's such a great villain, because he fulfills his own mythic. Prophecy no. of
0: being non-existent. Well, I... Yes. I think there's slightly more to Omega than... Uh, and I don't think he would have ended up in the top ten if there wasn't...
1: What about the meddling monk then, because...
0: Well, just before we go to the meddling yeah, monk, on. on the subject of Omega, Rassalon got three votes, mm. which is pretty poor, and Rassilon... Because here's the thing about Omega, is he was created for the 10th anniversary of the series, or the yeah. 10th season of the series, mm-hmm. for this special story. And we've talked about this before. And I think what was a genius about that story was that it becomes a story about the Doctor's home planet mm-hmm. and about the Doctor's ability to travel in time and space. And therefore, it sort of becomes a sort of metatextual story about the program. Mm. And I think that was a really clever way to do it, in a story that still functions as a story. So it's not just... It's a decent story, and it builds on the myth, and it says something about the television programme itself. And then ten years later, they do the same thing with the Five Doctors, taking this character that Robert Holmes has thrown into the mix in 1976, apparently out of nowhere, who's almost a kind of replacement for Omega, it was almost as if Robert Holmes couldn't remember who Omega was, you mean Rassilon? Yeah, but Rassilon
2: wasn't the villain in the Five
0: Doctors. Well, he, he sort of is right at the end, isn't he?
2: Um, no, he, he he's the
0: one who's luring everybody so he can trap them in eternal wakefulness.
2: Oh, uh, don't. No, he's he's punishing he's punishing greed and avarice, aber- but he's he's the one that returns the Doctor's... He's vengeful, and shall mm. we say. He, he, well, he's Old Testament god-like. Well,
1: so, yeah. so... Like there's, there's a
2: degree, But he's not... But Rasselon becomes a villain when he's played by Timothy Dalton. Um, that's that's what we're talking of, about yeah. when we talk
0: about Rasselon as a
2: villain, not Five Doctors Rasselon. Well, the villain, both. The, the, the but villain the point I'm making is, is that... Spoiler.
0: By 1983, Robert Holmes and Terence Dix have replaced Omega with Rassilon. Yeah, yeah. Which is a very strange move. Mm. I'd have thought... I would have thought that Omega would have been the perfect villain for the Five Doctors, rather than Omega turning up in Ark of Infinity in a really nothingy story, mm. and then you having a combination of Barusa, is it in the Five Doctors? Mm. It is, isn't it? Mm. And ultimately Rassilon. It all. I mean, much as I like the Five Doctors and much as I like what it does. That seems like a strange series of decisions going on there in the 20th anniversary year.
2: Well, particularly with Ark of Infinity so close to the Five Doctors. Yeah. But but Omega is a different, it's a different concept to Rassilon. Omega's never intended to be <clears throat> king of the Time Lords. He's always been a scientist that's been abandoned by the Time Lords. Yes, but what and was Rassilon? become a god of his own, <coughs> own realm.
1: Rassilon was the founder of the Time Lords. But how? Well, he was again, the first to regenerate,
0: wasn't he? Um, that's, where, the, that's, again, the that's the legend. Yeah, myth, again, again... So he's a scientist as well.
2: Well, Devin, in the sense that all time Lords was a scientist, but Rassilon was a magic scientist. Well, but, so it was but, Omega. But, yeah, yes. But then you get into the sort of Andrew Cartnell era of who's Omega, who's Rassilon, who's the Doctor. Well, Omega's and, a hand a bomb
0: by this point.
2: Um, yeah. Well, there's supposed to be a triumvirate of, of creators of the Time Lord Society, of which the Doctor is one, Omega is another, and Rassilon's another. But originally, Omega wasn't, he was the scientist that invented the power source that gave them time travel. So he was like a scientist who worked underneath Rasselon.
0: Who was well, the, first yeah, Lord, the, the, ret- first, the first Lord, the first Lord president.
2: Wasn't... No, I think that's in The Three Doctors, isn't it? No, it was in The Five Doctors. Omega? There's
0: no mention uh, of Rassilon in The Three in, in no. the three Doctors.
2: So the fact that he worked under Rassilon... Is a retcon. Well, yes. Okay. But it's a retcon from... Well, no, it's not a retcon because it's not contradicting anything that's gone before. It's just saying that... It's just saying that Rassilon was in charge when Omega was was a scientist. And that's what it yes, says in the Yes, but The Three like, Doctors gives the impression remember, that
0: Omega's in charge. And then... then the deadly assassin suddenly I didn't says, think
2: the three doctors said that Omega was... I thought it said that he was a scientist who, who became god
0: of his own universe. Not that he was president of the Time Lords. No, it doesn't say he was president of the Time Lords, but this is before the Time Lords exist. Omega's... It doesn't say that Omega was in, in charge. It no, says, it doesn't uh, say he was in charge. But what did you just say then? I'm saying it gives the impression... Right. That Omega wasn't working for somebody, but that Omega was the person who created and started it all. Omega's position in the Three Doctors yes. is essentially as the person who founded... I, He's kind of the Oppenheimer, though, isn't he? He's the, he's the yeah. one who created the power source that powers yeah. the Time Lords. It is, but the way the Three Doctors tells <laughs> it, yeah, Omega is like this mythic figure.
1: Yes, a mythic figure, yeah.
0: Who is... The founder of everything that comes after. Almost afterwards. gave his
1: life to give them the power source.
0: Yeah so, yeah, so if you take that as the starting point, then Rassilon would be the one who comes after and takes up Omega's work. Not that Rassilon would be Omega's boss. No. So by, when you get to Deadly Assassin and then you get Rassilon's Omega's boss, all of a sudden you're thinking, well, hang on, Omega's really not this mythic figure after all if he was working for somebody because if you're <clears throat> I don't know, if you're the lead animator on Cinderella Walt Disney gets the kudos, not you mm. so even if Omega was to go missing, if he was working for Rasselon, Rasselon would still be the one who gets all the credit for all the good work that Omega did and Omega would become this sort of second string figure rather than the legend that he did become the point I'm making is that by the time we get to 1976, all of a sudden they're saying, <coughs> right, we need to have two legendary figures at the dawn of Time Lord Civilization, which is a bit... So is Rassilon mentioned in Deadly Assassin? Rassilon, yeah, you've got the Rod of Rassilon, the Sash of okay, Rassilon, okay. And all that kind of stuff. Okay. That's Rassilon's first mention, I think. Okay, yeah. Rassilon so, and on. <clears throat> well, it, yeah, it just... It's just, okay, you do this legendary figure from the dawn of Time Lord Civilization and then four years later, you do another one. It's like, of all the things to criticize Deadly Assassin for, nobody ever criticizes it for that. Yeah, I still think it works, though. Because Rassilon is a different <coughs> mythic figure. from.
2: They're both mythic figures, but they're different. Omega's the scientist who becomes a god. Rassilon's the first president who gives his name to this kind of... this pomp and circumstance. So it's having the becomes, rod of Omega in Deadly Assassin* would have different connotations. Yeah, you,
0: but he becomes the first president because he's this legendary scientist. Hence the sash of Rasselon and the rod of Rasselon and all these other things which look like they're um, jewels but are actually scientific accoutrements. Yeah. But...
2: You can, you yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't strike me as their objects as created by Rassilon. It strikes me that their objects named in honor of Rassilon, as the first president. Rasselon strike or strikes me as being this kind of ornate administrator, rather than rather than a scientist. Rasselon doesn't strike me as a as a person that creates things, not like Omega. Rassilon strikes me as the person who gets
0: things named after him. Them. The whole point of all those things is that Rasalhague creates them, and nobody knows what they are.
2: Is that is? Are you sure? Is that what I'm it says? I'm pretty sure. That, yeah. that invented and then the, you get to the
0: five doctors, and he's created this immortality casket as well.
2: But but the impression I got from all of them is he wasn't a hands-on creator. He was the man who set up the Death Zone. But that doesn't mean he created <clears> the Death Zone. That means he he organized the creation of the Death Zone in his role as leader of the Time Lords. That's my impression of, my impression of Rassilon is, he's a war chief for the want of a better word, but also an administrator, a president, a controller, not a scientist, not a hands-on scientist. He's the person that uses people as scientists. And that's my impression. I mean, that's what I got from Deadly Assassin and The Five Doctors. And that's really? why I think they're distinctive characters. It's like the Rani and and <clears throat> the Master, I guess. The Rani is presented as a Time Lord Scientist, which makes her distinctive. Whereas the, the Master is presented as this, well, generally speaking, this kind of bland...
0: Well, we'll get op- to the Master. Opposite of the Doctor. In ninth place, on 9%, oh, we didn't talk about the Meddling Monk. I
1: think Meddling Monk's more interesting... <laughs> I I mean yeah. is he is he really a villain? Which is a pain in the ass. Well,
0: isn't he is he, a villain in the same way as the Rani's a villain. Mm. He's
2: an antagonist. Yeah. I mean the Rani's
0: a bit more villainous
2: than the, the Rani sort of slips between being interesting and being malevolent and just mad.
0: Well, the monk gets out of some pretty yes. villainous stuff in the name of amorality yeah. and scientific curiosity. And that's all that the Rani does. Mm. That's all that many of them do, I mean philosophically it comes down to the old question of if you look at it from somebody else's perspective, it might not be as evil as you think it looks from your perspective.
2: Maybe the monk is weaker than the Rani. the monk is sort of in times of personality weaker than the Rani, so the doctor's much more is much more you never get the sense that the doctor's threatened by the monk because the doctor can just outwit the monk quite easily whereas the Rani's a bit more sort of a bit more kind of on I top, top of things or, <coughs> although it gets outwitted because that's yeah because like that's how the program works, works.
0: Yeah. and the monks certainly are more um comedic no I wasn't gonna say comedic I was gonna say a more human character more easy to understand yeah yeah than the, all the time lords that came afterwards, who have been set up as either mythic or amoral or in some ways different. The meddling monk is... He, he kind he, of embodies
1: a temp, the temptation of the time traveller, doesn't he?
0: Yeah, he's Also,
1: and to all intents and purposes, he's played as a human being.
2: He's, mm. also, he's also more even than... So the, the master's presented as the doctor's mirror opposite, but actually the monk is the doctor's mirror opposite because the monk is a character that... It seems obsessed by humanity, but has gone down a completely different path to the doctor.
0: So the the monk mm. is
2: trying to sort of like control
0: the destiny of humanity. Mm. Well, the master turns up at somewhere he's planned to turn up and puts into operation a plan, however convoluted and dreadful it might be, that he has conspired to set in motion. Whereas the monk kind of you get the impression he just sort of turns up and says, right, where am I? What's going on? What can I do? Mm. Which is what the doctor
2: does. Yes, yeah. And the the monk makes the wrong decisions, arguably,
0: and the doctor makes the right ones, arguably. Well, yeah. Except the monk could have saved us all from being French. Mm. But never mind. In ninth place, on 9%, Fenric. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I was a bit surprised about that. I always think Fenric's the weakest part in The Curse of Fenric. <laughs> I mean, I I'm assuming that part of the reason that the that Fenric is there is because of the love for that story. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to be really contrary tonight. Wow. I, well,
2: there's a shock. So, so for me, Fenric Fenric is like Omega in that they build up his mythology through the story, and you don't really see him. He's sort of working behind the scenes. And then because he's possessing characters, it works through their performances, but you never actually see Fenric. You see Fenric. He's like the devil in the omen then. Yeah, yeah. Essentially. Yeah. And that, for me, works better than Omega did, who you finally see, and it's a little bit underwhelming for me, because you never see Fenric. You only see Dinsdale Landon playing Fenric, or you see, what's his name, Tom McBorg playing Fenric. And those performances are genuinely quite powerful.
0: They're quite good. That
2: that cliffhanger <laughs> where where Judson not Judson um
0: turns to the camera and his eyes are yellow. Yeah, and he stand, always sort of stands
2: always like... stands up. I mean that's um... quite that is quite ineffective. And that is I mean it's not that is Fenric the character. Fenric the character isn't played by any anybody in particular, but that is Fenric the character. Mm-hmm. And that's a really powerful moment, I think.
0: But i think the character itself is a bit ill conceived
2: yeah i mean i, I if we're allowed <clears throat> to bring in um novelizations which we have already done then the novelization of, of <laughs> just uh, the novelization of course it of really fleshes out this idea he's not just a mythic dr who <clears throat> character he's actually a character based on human myth as well so it's a human it's this sort of game player from from
0: evil since the dawn of time <laughs> yeah but that's I think what's a bit ill conceived about it Okay. it's because Doctor Who doesn't really do evil since the dawn of time does it well that's let's what? wait for Sutek the Destroyer mm-hmm. the Satan Pit yeah yeah, but Sutek the Destroyer isn't an evil since the dawn of time. It's a alien who's a bit of a naughty one who has had legends built up around him since. But he's not an evil since the dawn of time. Whereas Fenrir is an evil since the dawn of time.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's what it suggests. I just wonder if if evil since the dawn of time... I mean, it's sort of... I don't
0: know. I don't know. Well, Sutek... An was... embodiment of evil is... Yeah, but Sutec's not an embodiment of evil. He's just no, a person. No. And no. again, from our perspective, he looks like an evil bastard. Yeah. But from his perspective, what our, he's doing... Our evil is good. Well, absolutely. But the point with Fenric is, he is set up to be the evil since the dawn of time, mm-hmm. who the Doctor has been playing this chess with across the last 25 minutes and not the previous 25 years.
2: No. <clears throat> but they do their best in actually like convincing us that that's the case
0: and yeah, the, way it's,
2: I the th- way it's conceived, the way it's presented is very effective
0: yes it is but I can't help getting to the end of Curse of Fendrick every time and thinking no he's not been playing this chess game that's something and I would never say that you shouldn't bring something up that you've never heard of before if it's in service of telling a good story but I don't necessarily think that an evil since the dawn of time was necessarily the best way to finish The Curse of Fenric. It it could have been that you get to the end of that story and this person who the Doctor's confronted with isn't somebody he knows of, but is somebody he's now just finding out about and I think that would have worked probably even better rather than just as well Mm. because the way it's presented to you is that you should have realized
2: i mean that's the I mean that's the nature of the period of the program that yeah. the doctor knows something, but we don't but I think and that's the weakest revealed.
0: I think that's yeah, the weakest possibly. part of that period of the program. I love a lot of the stuff in that period of the possibly. program, but the hand of omega, the silver nemesis, the evil since the dawn of time, the question of whether the doctor was there with on and Omega right at the start. Those are the bits that I find hardest to stomach. Hmm. And I don't mind new additions to the continuity. It's just that those aren't additions to the continuity. They kind of override things.
1: Yeah, maybe yeah. all of a sudden the, dog, the Doctor's this big hitter.
0: Yeah, it's like it changes who the Doctor is. Yeah. I mean, and like if the Doctor's been playing this game against Fenrir that we've just never seen that also changes who the Doctor is. Mm. And if the Doctor is this person who's been setting things up like the Hand of Omega and the Silver Nemesis, that <coughs> changes who the Doctor is. Yeah. We said less than five minutes ago or less than ten minutes ago, the Doctor is the person who turns up like the meddling monk, sees what's going on and gets yeah. involved. And all those things in Curse of Fenric, Silver Nemesis, Remembrance of the Daleks go against that.
2: I think they leave enough gaps and enough, enough uncertainty to stop it being a complete kind of,
0: to it's still just about, about keeping the mm. mystery.
2: I mean, a lot of this stuff has come out since in Lung Barrow and books and interviews, mm. but actually in those stories themselves, they still, A Silver Nemesis isn't the great, greatest story, but they still keep that, they still keep the ambiguity there. you still not But they quite don't
0: sure. with the Hand of Omegu. The doctor's that. planting that in nineteen sixty three when he's on yeah. earth with Susan. Yeah. But I
2: don't um, I don't mind that. I mean if you if you worry about that kind of he's retrospective planting then that there's, to destroy plenty, the there's plenty the of dialects. things more recently that but he's <laughs> Well no we're, we're about to we're about to witness the first doctor between presumably in a moment just before his first regeneration. That would be quite that's quite a similar thing, isn't it? Well, no,
0: it doesn't it doesn't directly contradict something.
2: Uh does but how does how does remembrance of the Daleks directly contradict
0: something? Well, it directly contradicts this very second Doctor Who story where the Doctor has never met the Daleks. It before. suggests that there's an undercurrent running right the way through the series from the start
1: that right. the, the whole time the Doctor's somehow in control of everything, or right. in control of something bigger than yeah. what you're seeing on screen. But he's yeah.
0: also planting in 1963, before he even knows who the Daleks are, a bomb to destroy the Daleks. Right. Okay. You can't plant a bomb to destroy the Daleks before you even know who the Daleks are.
1: Right. Was that, it specifically destroy the Daleks? I mean, that bomb he's was just tar- using it. No, that bomb was targeted at Scarrow, wasn't it? I think he targets it during the story. Yeah, he really it. He hides the with, weapon because oh, oh, that's maybe. what it does with the control unit. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's it's it is a retcon to say that the first Doctor was on Earth.
0: To bury planting the bombs,
2: ha- planting plant the hand of Omega, which isn't a bomb, it's a
0: well, it's whatever. A advanced I piece am, of technology. I am, but <laughs> simplifying but, for but, effect.
2: But that's not something I don't think that that contradicts the first story. That just that just gives another edge to why he left Gallifrey, which is something Stephen Moffat's done. Well, yeah, but I
0: don't, don't think he's done it with such a yeah. You a broad stroke. Well, no, I think that's, but I that's I think what JR was
1: picking up, on no, I, I it, have to agree to it. I've I've come to. Kind of appreciate that era for yeah. for what it is, yeah. and you
0: also talked about but, just uh, fifteen minutes ago about the Doctor in the first story being the villain. Yes, he's not there to do good, mm. to defeat baddies. That's something that the character grows into yes. over the first few years of the if series. You, if yeah. you compare, it to so someone... he's not there to plant a hand of Omega so that he can use it at some later point well, that's in order to do good with it.
2: I, well I don't know I mean that sounds like very like the first Doctor he he plants a dangerous piece of time or technology <laughs> on earth that's exactly what the
0: first Doctor would do at that well, point. Well no because he's not the doctor
2: not that's quite yes, but the first Doctor in
0: that first story isn't a bomb maker he's just somebody who wants to have a quiet existence. He's not even met the Daleks yet and so, we so,
2: so we're going off topic of it but the doctor in that first story the hand of omega isn't a bomb he's not he's not made a bomb he's hidden the bomb on earth so the doctor in that first story remembrance of Dikes is saying the doctor in an an earthly child is there guarding the bomb is there looking after the bomb well in that case it
1: takes a pretty arbitrary decision to leave at the end of the first episode he
2: doesn't decide to leave at the end of the first episode
1: do I think is quite interesting is how uh stephen moffat or Whoever in the modern series gets criticized so easily. So you think about something like The Doctor's Wife, mm. where he has the audacity to infer that the TARDIS had some kind of relationship with him all the way through. Mm. And you've got something as subtle and poetic as that. Yeah, And then, as I say, broad strokes on the, uh, the Cartmill era, yeah. as far as... But that's, that's the concerned. nature of the program in... in- but yeah, while, I'm, days I'm, days. I'm saying more about people's reaction that, that yeah. people will now oh, yeah, react, yeah. place a lot of affection on the Cartmell era and say, well, I really love all that yeah, stuff. you yeah. know? But then as soon as so my, Stephen Moffat dares to do anything which kind mm-hmm. of retraces back through the series, it's like, what's he so, doing to so, our programme? So my point <clears> is <throat> I really like both of them. Yeah, yeah. And I think Stephen
2: Moffat is in the spirit of Robert Holmes, who does the same thing. Mm. Douglas Adams, who does the same thing. And Andrew Cartmell, who does the same thing. I think Andrew Cartmell does it as you say, with quite broad brushstrokes. And he tries to change the series possibly too quickly and too Mm. broadly. But I think at that point, because the series was failing, I think they needed quite a sort of...
1: He'd kick up the arse. Yeah, and I
2: think that's what he did. But I think maybe he needed two or three seasons to build up so mm. he he earned the right to do
1: these mm. sorts of things. So it has become something which works in that. Area. But actually,
2: yeah. at the time when I was eight years old, nine years old, mm. Remembrance of the Daleks was the most pant-wettingly exciting thing on television, and I didn't know that much about the first Doctor. I just so <laughs> that wasn't because you know,
0: of the Hand of Omega.
2: Um, it it wasn't, but it was partly it was partly the Daleks, but also partly coloured by the way that. I could tell that they were mythologising something, I could tell that they were drawing on the history of Doctor Who, and I could tell that there was something mythic
1: going on, I didn't know exactly but what again, it was.
0: But again, that would still have been the case without the hand of Omega. I'll
1: tell you what I'd find more believable is if the fact that the Doctor's living this long life, and he will become different people with different yeah. motives, yeah. and by the time of Sylvester McCoy's Doctor, he would he have would reached that stage where he thinks, do you know what, sod all this, I'm going to start manipulating the whole yeah. thing. Because I've had enough. Which is the idea, isn't it? That's. But you don't but, see But that. what you're saying, is, but but then, you've got this thing which retraces back to the beginning. Yeah. Which says, oh, well, that person was always there, and that he's always been fighting Fenric. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's the bit that doesn't quite still doesn't yeah, quite sit I, right
2: with me. I think when I watch it, I don't imagine any other Doctor. I imagine McCoy's Doctor fighting Fenric. Okay. From from the beginning of time. Right. I imagine it's always McCoy's doctor. Mm. I imagine. I imagine the first Doctor hiding the Hand of Omega, but I don't see that as being part of some sort of some sort of long game. I see that as the the first Doctor hiding this mm. dangerous Stellar manipulator mm. and then guarding it. That's the impression I get. Mm. So I don't think it changes the first Doctor for me. It's just always the the seventh. And as I said, when I was young, I didn't pick up. I needed those broad brushstrokes to think this is mythic. Because it's a, it was aimed at children, mm. It's mythology aimed at children, and I think Stephen Moffat is mythology aimed at children and adults potentially, because he's subtle and and broad. Mm. Mm. But I, I mean, I, I don't think it worked entirely. But I respect Andrew yeah. Carmel for yeah. doing something. At least he was doing
1: something. There's mm. nothing like that on television at the time. The same things gonna happen with Chris Chibnall, you know. Yeah. At the end of the day, he's the artist. So he should be given the f- the freedom to...
0: I suspect he will. Yeah. Chris Chibnall's complaint about Pip and Jane Baker was that they weren't pushing the envelope. Not that they were pushing it too far. Yeah. I think when Chris oh, Chibnall yeah. turns up, he'll be pushing the envelope. Um, <clears throat> not necessarily in terms of the mythology of the programme, but certainly in terms of the...
1: Format?
0: Tone and format. Yeah, I would have thought so. Um, in eighth place... On 12.4%. Bring it on.
1: <laughs> <coughs>
0: Just warm me up now. Oh, God. We we'll do the rest of this without you, shall we? <laughs> Tobias Vaughan. Okay. Oh, nice. Well, Mavic Chen yeah. didn't do so well. Tobias Vaughan got three times as many votes as Mavic Chen. Mavic Chen's a sort of an invisible villain because of the episodes
2: not existing in the-
0: but I mean, it, of all the episodes that don't exist, now that we've got an animated Power of the Daleks, and now that Weber fears back, Daleks, yes. Mister Master Plan is the most legendary of the ones yeah. that are missing. Yeah. And sometimes the legendary one is the one who comes first to mind, yeah. especially as I gave a list of all these characters on Facebook yes. for people to vote, and Mavic Chen was there. Mm. I would have thought Mavic Chen was a more interesting, more flawed and better characterised character than Tobias Vaughan. Only by a slight degree, but I would have they, thought
2: they so. They both have... I mean, the obvious link is because they're played by the same person. Well, yes,
0: just, that's why I brought it up.
2: But they also have the same sort of trajectory
0: of... They both character. think they're going to get one over yeah. on the metal meanies that they've teamed up with, yeah. while actually what's happening is... The metal meanies are pulling the wool over their eyes. Yeah. And they get a comeuppance at the end. so
2: Which the master has. I mean, that's the master mm-hmm. as well.
0: But, but between these two characters, because they are both played by the same person, I don't know, I just thought it would be closer between them than that Tobias Fawn would get three times as many votes.
1: <clears throat> we we know the invasion really well as well, don't yeah, yeah. we, as fans? Um, And it's quite a grounded character. It's quite a believable character, and it's got the whole thing. It's got portrayal and it has motive, and it's got more humour as well. Yeah.
2: So there's something about Tobias Warren that he is. Yeah, Yeah. he's a villain, but he's also a sitcom. Jamie Oliver. Yeah. He's a sitcom boss (laughs) as well. He's the sort of he's the 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 sitcom boss whose subordinates are always doing something ridiculous Mm. to foil his plans, and you can see him getting really more and more when he loses his temper. It's actually really well performed, but also very comedic. I mean, this is like, it's like Reggie Perrin.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I... <clears throat>
2: it's not my favourite villain.
0: No. Um, but The thing about the invasion is, it kind of changes something about the Cybermen as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, for all its assets as a story there's something about it that seems to me to be a fundamentally bad Cyberman story in that they, this is the first time I think unless I'm mistaken that we see Cybermen with that kind of an agent why they need him mm. is kind of it spends eight episodes building up to this you know or six episodes building up to the Cyberman invasion and then two episodes defeating it yeah. and i, I I always think the moon base. What if they're going to cut a hole in the side of the moon base? Why don't they just invade there and then? And I'm thinking in the invasion, what do they need this bloke for? Because they're the Cybermen. Surely they're going to just turn up and do their thing. So my impression of the story of the Cybermen is
2: it's the constant, it's the constant attempt to make a good story with Cybermen. And yes. They have
0: never quite. And the thing about the invasion is, the thing about the invasion is, is a better story without the Cybermen. Yeah. It's a better story. Tobias Vaughan would be a better character if it was a different alien species that he was aligned with rather than the Cybermen. I think. Uh, which is not to say, I think, oh, it's terrible. Mm. They did a really bad thing there. It's just that's the sort of central logic problem that I've always had with that story. Why would they do that? And wouldn't he have been a more interesting character? if it hadn't been the Cybermen that he was aligned with. I mean, they're so... The Cybermen are supposed to be so emotionless and logical. Why they would think they need him, but... It's all about planting it, isn't it? So you can get the reveal at a certain point in the story, isn't it? But, But I just think his character would be more interesting, or would have... No, not necessarily his character would be more interesting. His character, as interesting as it is, would work better... If there was something less logical at the other end of well, that telephone almost, line.
2: It's almost what they needed was the Yeti rather than the Sidemen Because it's almost a great intelligence story. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, a, maybe. a man being controlled by yeah, yeah. a higher intelligence. And he's created robots. Or there are robots in the sewers. It's, but It's, it's and a if, web of fear.
0: Yeah, yeah. And if Thornton was given something just a little bit less logical. And like it's, he's talking to a computer... If he was talking something that... Not necessarily flesh and blood, but you know what I mean? Mm. Something sentient rather than something digital. Yeah. It just might have given the story and the character just that little bit more of a push towards being something really, truly special, I guess. Mm. Mm. Whereas Mavic Chen was, what, Prime Minister of the Solar System? Yeah, see... There's not a lot of difference, but I think there's just that slight spin on Mavic Chen that makes him just a little bit more interesting because the Daleks are conniving as opposed to computerised. The, like the, well.
2: the Daleks are there from the beginning, which helps. Mm. So, Which is always quite good because you've always got this tension. So you're always aware of you're the tension. You're not quite yeah, sure yeah. If, they're going to, if they're going to sort of work with the people. Or and so, in fact, yeah, they no, yeah. they're not going to work with the people. You well, now. At
0: some point, they're going to turn on them. See, but the, with... Um, in the Daleks' master plan, you kind of get this impression that everybody's scheming against everybody yeah. else. Whereas in the Invasion, Tobias Vaughn might be scheming, mm. but the side men are just going ahead with their plan. Yeah, There's no scheming on that side, no. so it lacks that element, Yeah, I think. So I don't know, just for me, I would have had Mavic Chen above Tobias Vaughn. But, obviously, they are both the same actor. They are very similar. They are in... Pretty similar stories and situations. Mm. And I guess you're right, the one that exists and that everyone can go out and buy on DVD probably is the one more likely to... That's the best animation as well. In seventh place, now this one wasn't originally on my list because I thought he's a great villain, but he's not one that people will vote for because they'll vote for the big ones. But then, like, out of the first three people, two of them voted for this one, so I quickly stuck it on the list. On fourteen point five percent in seventh place, Harrison Chase. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, from the Seeds of Doom. He is a great villain. He, but through purely through performance.
2: Performance.
0: And he's distinctive.
2: Which I think in Doctor in Doctor Who, distinctiveness is gold for a villain. The, yeah. If you're going to like think about the best villain, you have to think:
0: is it performed
2: distinctively? Do they have distinctive motivations? And he does have a
0: distinctive motivation. I or think it's a goal. But I think it's a completely unbelievable one. Yes, but that's that's part of his intention. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just... But I think that he is... Oh, as much as I love him, and as yes. brilliantly as I think he's performed, yeah. and as wonderful as I think some of his dialogue is, yeah. he's the one element of that story. Well, he's one of the elements, probably the biggest element of that story, where I think, yeah, no, I can't accept that. <laughs> <laughs> but, Which is not a complaint. Seeds of Doom is still one of my yeah. favourite stories, but yeah. I think... I'm always saying if you love something, you love it because of as well as in spite of its flaws. Yeah. And the seeds of doom is just so flawed, and that's one of the biggest I think, flaws. I think. I think in this instance,
2: so if you're talking about a villain who's insane, then this character abandons all common sense, and I think that's he's the he's the the, the true anarchist in terms. of if it's you're almost like the Joker. You kind of. You kind of you can't take the Joker seriously, but that's why he's so frightening because he's not a serious character. He take, he doesn't he's unhinged. unhinged, but also incredibly violent. And that's Harrison Chase, I think. So he's well, perfect. But Harrison Chase
0: him. has a thing, right? Which mm. is the uh, plants shall, you know, take over the planet. Yeah. and it's not him, but it's that. Yeah, that I find difficult to accept. Yeah, he's like. Um, I can't remember the character's name from Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Grover and yes, the others. Yeah, it wasn't Grover who was behind it, was it? Whitaker. Yes. Who want to turn back time? Mm. Essentially, Harrison Chase wants to turn back time. Yeah. But sort of in a way that extinguishes all animal life. Yeah. Solely for the benefit of plant life, which of course isn't possible anyway, because mm. you wouldn't be able to. Plants wouldn't be able to germinate without the help of various animals and etc. Yeah. Yes. But the kind of point there is, it's like in Invasion of the Dinosaurs, the characters and the situation comes out of the motivation. Yes. Whereas in Seeds of Doom, the motivation comes out of the situation.
2: And I think that's part of the character. I think the fact that the motivation the fact that this character clearly hasn't actually thought things through and is
0: well that's what works about
2: it yeah but that's also a foundation the foundation of his character that's the foundation but what of his I mean insanity is, that's in, why the doctor in story the doctor,
0: terms you're insane i mean you clearly
2: you're but what i mean that. is
0: in story terms mm. in invasion of the dinosaurs malcolm Hull says right what would happen if people wanted to turn back time yeah, yeah. and then creates a way in which they want to do it and creates the characters yes whereas in seeds of doom somebody just says oh, let's write a story about giant vegetable monsters, and in order to have a villain, we need somebody who wants to eradicate that, all animal life.
2: Or they say, what if somebody's so insane that he's lost he's lost all sense? That's not how the story doesn't... starts, though, is it? No.
0: That's no. where they slot his no. character in. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: He's a... He's yeah. a, um, Not a MacGuffin, but he's a... he. He's not important in that story. He's just there to facilitate it, being six episodes rather than four.
2: Yeah. I guess so. I mean, it's. So he's a the catalyst,
0: of, as opposed to. That's the word I was looking for. But I
2: also, I mean, I love the way that he. So his approach to the world <clears throat> is to treat. It's not just about plants are more important than humans. It's almost they. He's flipped plants and humans over. So he treats humans like humans would treat plants, and plants like humans would mm. treat humans. So he oh, mulches. Yeah. He mulches humans. Once you and get I to that. That's the that's the kind of the, the foundation the the foundation backstory of this whole of the whole of seeds of doom. So he's mm. a sort of he's a sort of condensation of that that. Yes, idea.
0: But, but it's not that the story grows out of him; no. it's that he grows out of the story. Yes. To use a vaguely opposite Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the, the
2: story is the crinoid is about the crinoids, mm-hmm. but it happens to have a villain albeit not at the heart of the story, but that's... No,
0: the story, he could of, have... Since sort of Dune could have happily taken place altogether without him, Yeah, really. it just wouldn't have been as good. Um, It wouldn't have been as entertaining. No. I, it might still have been as good, because I don't think Harrison Chase is what defines that story. He's just a great element in it. Yeah. Whereas, say, going back to Invasion of the Dinosaurs, that couldn't have taken place without Whitaker and the others.
2: Yeah. I think it, I think... Seeds of Doom, without Harrison Chase, would have worked as a four-part story set in Antarctica as a remake yeah. of the thing.
0: Or two in Antarctica and two in England, because you've got two pods and one of them ends up over in England. Mm. doesn't need to be in the hands of a collector, it just gets lost on the way over or something. In like essence, no.
1: Chase is the cl- he's a collaborator.
0: Yeah, basically, which, yeah. which becomes a mirror on us, doesn't it? A collaborator mm. with the queen of it. Mm. Mm. Essentially. But, but he's It's brilliantly drawn. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's just he seems less essential to me, Mm -hmm. which is why perhaps one of the reasons why I thought he wouldn't necessarily garner so many votes, but he has, because of course, and I should have realised, this Seeds of Doom is just such a well-loved story, isn't it? Yeah. And speaking of well-loved stories, in sixth place on seventeen point two percent, Scaroth of the Jaguar. Oh,
1: how funny. I can't remember if I put it down, but I mean, if I was going to go on Affection Alone, then I probably would have picked him.
0: Do you know what, though? When I first saw it, I hated him and I hated it. Yeah. But only until the second I time I saw it. it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. I was just at the wrong turning point in terms of age.
1: I like, the, I like. it's just not necessarily to do with the character, is it? This whole idea of him being split across time was a great.
0: Another one of these
1: Adam's ideas, these lovely yeah. visual ideas.
0: That's gone all thought Because I'm trying I don't to know think. whether that makes him a
2: good villain. I'm trying to se- Because the problem with Scaroth is he's several different characters. And I'm trying to decide if they're all the same or if there's a distinction. Whether he's different when he's the Jaggeroth to when he's the sort of loose
1: millionaire. It could have been expanded upon because you've got a character called Kang in the Marvel comics. Right. Who, who kind of... Travels through time and there's different versions of him in different time zones, as far okay. as I remember rightly. Yeah. Well, so lovely again,
0: with Tancredi in the mm. um, Renaissance set, but yes. he's the same as he is in. Um, yes. Paris. Yeah. So the character stays the same across the different splinters. Yes. Yeah. He's a bit once he's. One-eyed and green tentacly, he's a bit ranting monster. Same as the Zygons so, are.
2: So what I'm trying to think of is, I'd be more interested in him as a character if he was slightly different in each
0: different form. Mm. Maybe, but we don't really get to see any of them. No. We get like, we get a few seconds of the one in yeah. Renaissance Italy.
2: The other, the other difficulty <coughs> is Tom Baker is so dominant in that story. That, oh, I don't know. Don't I think he, Julian Glover is... That's what I'm going to say. So, Julian Glover holds his own with Tom Baker, but it's a balance rather than... It's not like Harrison Chase just goes completely like over the top of Tom Baker. I think there's a sort of a balance there, and I think that works nicely in City of Death.
0: I think it's the other way around, actually. I think Tom Baker brings himself up to... Julie, to um. I was gonna say Julian Glover. Yes, mm, Julian Glover. Yes, yeah. I don't know why. All of a sudden, I had a Lennon thing going on. John Glover, I was gonna say.
2: Yeah.
0: I think he's such a good guest star that Tom Baker brings himself up because look what happens the rest of that season.
2: Yeah. So I think they balance one another.
0: Yes, but what I'm saying is, I think it's Tom Baker who. I don't think it's the Julian well, Glover I matches would, Tom Baker. Yeah. I think Tom Baker matches Julian yeah. Glover. Okay.
2: Well, either way, I think the fact that they balance... Well, yeah, but when you're than... talking
0: about the character of the villain, I think that's an important distinction. The villain's so good that the Doctor has to be better. Mm. Which didn't... You did have a lot of... In the Graham Williams era, you did get a, f- a few half-decent villains, but they were usually either so thinly written or so oddly performed. You know, Creature from the Pit, a draster... Trist yeah. in Nightmare of Eden. Yeah. That they Tom Carden. Baker Yeah. Tom Baker's just taking a Mickey out of him. Yeah. And this is the last time. The, the last time before this, you get a couple of good ones in the middle of um the Keated Time season.
2: Maybe maybe Scaroth would stand out to me more if it was early Tom Baker and Scaroth Whereas here he's the antidote to to Tom Baker as he is in season 17. Mm -hmm. So he's a great, and as I say, he's a great balance to him. But that kind of like, that kind of like evens each other out. It's like they they sort of, it's mutual destruction between the two characters and you end up with sort of loving Tom Baker's performance (coughs) and then respecting Julian Glover's performance. And it's sort of, I don't know, I don't know. I think that balance kind of takes away the distinctiveness. Really? I think so. I think there's something about Seeds of Doom where Tom <coughs> Baker's really slightly understated and Harrison Chase is completely outrageous. And I think that kind of
1: works well in opposition.
2: I dunno. I don't know.
1: Oh, I don't know. I think I just want to know how scaroff moves the mouth and the eyes. Well there's the old he thing about mask on. the old and why doesn't he talk like Doctor Zoidberg from Futurama? Well, there's also the big
2: question about how he conducted a long-term relationship with the Countess with, this a, is true, with yeah. a fake face, and she never noticed. Well, like, she bits, marries bits for him, money. She probably bits of thinks he's more
0: gay. And green than than they should be. Yeah. <laughs> she marries for money. She's probably never slept in
2: the same bed as yeah. he is. Yeah, I think that's Gareth Roberts. Gareth Roberts. Gareth, Gareth Roberts. Robert. Gareth, yeah. Robert. Yeah. Gareth Roberts' explanation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, those kind <laughs> of relationships, that's not too no. much of a... <laughs> Shall we uh, do the top five? Yes. Okay, in fifth place on 17.9%, just above Scaroth. it's Missy. Okay. <clears throat> Which, given that the Sim Master... I don't know if Sim Master didn't just kind of get overshadowed by the other Masters. I think everybody... Possibly thought, well, who's I need to have favorite? a master on my yeah, list. Who's my favourite master? Which oh. one is the... Brad. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think, I didn't I have two masters on my list? I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember what your no. list
1: was. Okay. Do you think there's a preconception about John Sim as an actor that I mean he tends to play the nice guys, doesn't he? Really? Antagonists. Oh. Have you seen him in quite a, I just always... co Protagonist. Protagonists,
2: right. I mean, I've I, seen it. I, I've always seen him as being a slightly sort of... A slight anti-hero. So he's always playing the flawed...
0: Mm.
2: He he plays sort of
0: weak... But he plays the good heroes. guys. The weak good guys, but I still suppose, the good guys. Yeah. I mean, the things I knew him from, apart from life on Mars, are things like sex traffic and state of yeah. play. Yeah. And he always is the good guy.
2: Yeah. But definitely, even in state of play, he's flawed. So there, there is sort
1: of... <coughs> yeah, that's there modern kind of, telly, isn't yeah. it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I don't
1: know. No, I loved. Him. I really liked him. I think I prefer him to. Miss I them. love him as an actor, I really do. Right. But actually, the master, I didn't. He
0: was way better in um, the two-parter in series ten, which is why I thought he might get votes, mm-hmm. because he was exceptional in that. But we're here to talk about Missy now. Yeah. 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 So she's ended up top five. Is that? I mean, she's so radically. I think even from Sims Master, I think she's radically different. Mm. Sims Master, the madness was, despite Russell T Davis's attempt to explain it away by the drumming in his ears, the madness that Sims Master exhibits in the Russell T Davis era always seemed like a feigned madness. Mm. Whereas the madness that you get for want of a better word the eccentricity with missy just seems really natural and honest
1: Hmm. um there's a
0: a certain self-awareness about herself as well she also in terms of character she also is one who rather than making plots for world domination or anything along those lines or destruction of this or destruction of that, her plots, her plans, they're really quite tangential and generally tend to depend on other people. So her her plots are basically her
2: playing in a sandpit, trying to attract the Doctor to come and play with her. That seems to be what she does all the time. She's constantly... She's not trying to trap the Doctor... She's trying to just
1: get the Doctor's attention. So the Doctor... She? She's very childlike. She's like... Those feline as well, this idea of bringing a mouse home to show your owner. You yeah, know? except...
0: Yeah. If you... That's not quite the case. Because if you look at what she's doing, in Death in Heaven, you get one slight iteration of it, which is she makes an army for the Doctor. And this is her, be my friend, come and be like me. Mm. But then in Series 9... She's the one who's put the Doctor and Clara together in order to create the hybrid. That's not necessarily a come-and-play-with-me thing. That's a, if-you-won't-come-and-play-with-me thing, then bugger you, you can go off, and you can be the one who gets the blame for the end of everything. Yeah. And it's only that eventually the Doctor and Clara split up that the hybrid doesn't destroy the universe or whatever. Yeah. But it's almost like the first instance is yes, come and play with me in my sandpit but the second one is well if you won't come and play in my sandpit I'm blowing the sandpit up and I'm putting the blame on you so it's... I'm
2: trying to remember how the hybrid story worked again she, she had a sort of a so she was the one that, <clears throat> that brought them together but she didn't have a massive role in that revelation, did she? she well only really because there.
0: the actress wasn't available in the episode
2: yeah so really, her next substantial appearance was in the Dalek two-parter?
0: Uh, yeah, no, we're talking about Hellbent, which is after the Dalek two-parter.
2: No, her, her her next substantial appearance was in the Dalek two-parter. She didn't... was she in Hellbent?
0: No, because she wasn't available. Yeah. She was supposed to be there at the end, where no shielder was.
2: Right, OK.
0: But she wasn't... So that's after the Dalek two-parter. Yes,
2: OK, so... so, yeah...
0: But yes, and she was supposed to be, and right, she, right. in the dialogue she is, okay. responsible for the hybrid. Okay, okay. So that's her plan in Series 9, is the hybrid.
2: Yeah.
0: Even though we don't get to see her at the end of it. Oh, yeah, that but that's just sense. the way things work out. But nevertheless, what I'm saying is, if you take that as her plan in Series 9, mm. and compare it to her plan in Series 8, It's like she said well that didn't work in series 8 So bugger the lot of you Mm. That seems to be Because her plan in series 9 is Destruction of everything But throwing the blame elsewhere Mm. So it's a In series 9 It's it's not destruction of everything For the purposes Of having the power It's destruction of everything out of spite Mm. So she becomes a spiteful character so yes, essentially she's drawn as a child, but also that the Dalek two-parter, she's there's an
2: element of her that's playing at being the Doctor, which is then extended in the next mm. the next season. So she's the one. But that's that not her plot. She's the, not the plot, but that's the way her character is constructed. Well, it isn't. So there. if you if you look at the season in retrospect, you can sort of construct what her plot is. But actually, if you look at when she appears in the season, and what her role is it's still as somebody who's playing it's still somebody who's playing games somebody yeah. who's a who's, child who's not trying to attract the doctor this time but trying to trying to pretend to be the doctor and that carries on the next time when she actually tries to be good she tries mm. to sort of tries to sort of redeem herself
0: well, then if you playing, consider, game
2: playing being
0: the Doctor. Well, if you consider that throughout Series 8 and 9, she's a child. Yeah. The end of Series 10 is the bit where she grows up. Yeah. And never gets to. Do you want to go on to yes. four, then? Yeah. All right, on 20.7%, Shara's Jag. Ah. Oh, Very really good. I voted uh, for Shara's Jag. Did she? Yeah. He's dist- At least he's distinctive.
2: So... <clears throat> Phantom of the Opera I think he's Phantom of the Opera but the Phantom of the Opera has a distinctive a distinctive if you're going to draw a villain from a particular figure better Phantom of the Opera than Dracula yeah at least Phantom of the Opera has this kind of edge to him which is this sort of so Shower Jack's character grows out of the overall story which is this kind of quite complex sort of power struggle between between I mean it's
0: not He's a troll under the bridge. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. And and I think that makes him a distinctive villain. I think it makes him distinctive and he's well played. He's well performed. Um, and his position in the story is good. I like I like the opposition he has with the doctor. He works well with the with Peter Davison's doctor mm. and Perry being in the middle. It's a bit creepy. And as played
0: by Christopher Gable, works. he's very distinct. Yeah. And is the design
2: the, as well, that, that mask is very...
0: Oh, I nice I'm not so on. I'm also keen on the look. Right. Okay. I think the performance is what makes Sheraz Jack.
2: Yeah. I don't know, that, that mask <laughs> looks, looks like it's holding skin on. It looks like it's almost sort of surgical. It doesn't look gimpy to me. It looks like if he, took it, if he took it off, it looks like his face would fall
1: off.
0: Well, it does a, take it off. A bit like
2: he?
1: a bit like Magnus Grill, because he's got that kind of leather. leather he's made the, out of some kind of plaster or something like that. Do you remember that toy in the 70s, jail where they used to advertise and somebody would have two hands clutched together and you'd put it into a pot and you could make a plaster version of your hands, cast of your no. hands? No. Mm.
0: that. Just
1: reminds me that Jack is, is okay. to you. It is. It just reminds me. Yes.
0: He is very much a repeat of uh, Magnus Grill yeah. in many ways.
2: Yeah. But more complex, I
0: think. Because the story is well, yeah, place. Magnus Greel is um, very Jack- two-dimensional. Really, Flash. Isn't he? yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas at least Shares Jack Jacket sort of and played by Christopher Gable, yeah, absolutely killer performance, mm, yeah, yeah. I'm just not overly keen on the story, really. No, I just, but, um, well, well, I know you're not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm no, just no, no. so Sharis Jack always seems to me like. A bridesmaid rather than a bride, do you know what I mean? Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Morg- uh, kind of a puppet master,
2: I suppose. I mean, Morgus is also a really good. I mean, Morgus is also a really nice. Pretty thing much everybody
0: in those stories are villains. Yeah, they?
2: yeah. But it's it works for me. I think they they all have their own motivations, and and what doesn't work, and I kind of half agree that it's it's not, it's not the ideal Doctor Who story because it's a story full of. Villains. shades of darkness shades of darkness and I always think that if Doctor Who was constantly like that which then we see that that Eric well, Saber tries to make the it year, yeah. then it would be bad but as a sort of a standalone last story for, for Peter Davison I think it's perfect because you're, <clears> it's truly shocking they just didn't, couldn't repeat it again after that. But see,
0: I don't think it really does stand alone, because it's just down the line from Resurrection of the Daleks and Warriors of the Deep and Earth Shock. So, to me, it doesn't really stand alone. It's just the apotheosis of that direction that Doctor Who was heading in. But, 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 to get back to the person we're supposed to be talking about, mm. Shara's Jack, yeah, I can't argue with it. Fourth place. I think mm. he deserves to be there. Yeah. I... Yeah, he's... Uh, like, Harrison Chase is, like, really the over-the-top, sort of violently violently over-characterised one. And Sharaz Jack is, like, the complete antithesis of that. Yeah. He could have been over-the-top and violently characterised. You know, when I say violently, I don't mean with violence, but I mean yeah. degrees of luridness. Yeah. And instead he's not, yeah. and that's what sells him. He's yeah. a bit like, well, we're going to get to... Somebody else in a minute, Mm -hmm. where we'll talk about that. But I think he's a bit like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And everybody probably knows what I'm talking about. And if they don't, obviously I'm talking about somebody who's going to be played by Michael Wisher, who we'll get to. But in third place, and maybe this one is a surprise, because this ain't a million miles away, I don't think, from Omega. is Sutek on 28.3%, which is quite a leap above Sharaz Jack.
2: It's not a million
0: miles away from Omega. He's plays more quietly, but actually, the character's I, basically the same.
2: I'm not sure I would I think I I think I'm I'm torn on this one by loving the story. Yeah, but yeah. But actually the villain isn't isn't for me the his performance is good, but the role of the hidden as a villain doesn't really make the story. It's not what makes the story. Me. No.
0: But it is intrinsic to the story. Yes. Yeah. Um Yeah, he, in character terms, he's like Omega. He's he's done something amazing. He's a godlike figure who's trapped and needs to escape Mm. and creates these minions, these monsters, the jail guards, the mummies, Mm. in order to try and facilitate this escape. And in doing so, human beings... Get co-opted into the plot and then the doctor turns up, etc etc. Mm. Pyramids of Mars and the three doctors, basically it's the same story. And so Sutek and Omega, basically it's the same character. Yeah. But the difference is all in the performance. It's not even, I don't think, in the writing. Because I can I don't find it that difficult to imagine Omega's dialogue. Performed in the manner of Sutek mm, mm. and vice versa. I, well, Your Evil is My Good, boomed out by Stephen Thorne Omega style. I can fully imagine that.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. At the end of the day, it makes a good action figure,
0: doesn't he? Yeah, it's the that, d- it's a why... design. But it's there's the performance. performance. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of love. Yeah. There is,
1: a... there is before, he gets a lot of.
2: He manages, for somebody who's basically sat in a chair. For 90% of his time. I can't remember his name. Who's the performer? Sutek.
0: Um it's Stephen. No, it's not Stephen no. Thorne, it's um. Or is
2: it? No, it's not Stephen Thorne. That's um that's Omega. And Azal. Oh come
0: on. People it's, are his um... now. <laughs> yes, they are, because he was in um more. He was in um, The Impossible uh, Planet. Yeah. Um now, um, lots of blank expressions <laughs> just keep talking and yes, you exactly. should have papered over that <laughs> it won't say on the DVD yeah
2: surely it will. does
0: it not have the <laughs> no because the DVDs uh, don't have credits on them do they well it's a shame uh, you haven't got them in order hasn't it?
1: <sighs> he hasn't uh, li- but moving listeners on, he hasn't got them in order I don't know I don't like having DVDs in order but particularly
2: the Doctor Who ones I'd like to think what Doctor Who story will I watch and I think, maybe I'll watch The Green Death. So yeah. I, in looking for The Green Death, I suddenly discover The Invasion. And I think, oh no, that's actually the Doctor Who story that I wanted to watch all along. <laughs> it's like Deliveroo. You sort, uh, of,
1: you sort of scale, go through all the takeaways. I've only got about half of them, but I need to have them in chronological order. So I think, what era do I want to watch? I have to go straight to it. Well, that's
0: fine. Shall we talk about Sutek? Yeah, come on. I prefer the design of Omega. To the design of Sutek. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I think it's a much more iconic character design, the mask in that. I think Sutek, when you finally get to see him, the mask is good. Once the mask comes off and you get the jackal head, mm. it all goes a bit, and basically it's just a black robe. The mask is good, but the rest of it is kind of, yeah, it's okay. Whereas with Omega, I think you get the full package.
2: But there is there is a case to be made with Sutek that it's not just his individual design, but it's the way his design fits into the story as a whole. And oh, the yes, way that the story is designed as a whole. So <coughs> Omega oh on an individual on an individual basis
0: is a really it's probably a better, more distinctive design. Well, yeah, but Omega's design which I think is by the same person. Yeah. I could be completely wrong about yeah. that. Hson James Edgerton. That... Yeah. Uh, no, because he, he did oh. the um, set design. Friedlander? To yeah, it could be. <laughs> John Friedlander. Yes. Uh, I think John Friedlander did Omega. Now I right. see, I don't know, maybe it was James Edgerton who did. Anyway, the point range? being, yes, but Omega's design is also designed to look like an engineer's outfit mm-hmm. taken to sort of illogical degrees. Yes. But it's, but it's also yeah, in keeping mask. with the character and yeah. the story, yeah. Yes, And that's the funny thing about the welding mask, is when you take it off, <laughs> yeah. it's welded out. Yes. So, yeah, I... But but Sutek wins it on the performance and on the quality of the story. Yes. Because The Three Doctors is much beloved, but the quality... I think Three Doctors has got better ideas, maybe, than Pyramids of Mars... But it's the execution in pyramids of Mars that sets it apart. Yeah. So, Sute Yeah. Third place. Not a shock. He's still prisoner. trying. To... Yes, of course. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Don't you have it's... a guidebook somewhere? Yeah, they're over there on the on the uh, shelf. Oh my God. Let's find out the name then before we. They're all not go. in any order. <laughs>
2: No, in the I can middle see of the that. shelf, there's a fourth doctor. There'll be a fourth doctor right in the middle, underneath the middle bracket of the shelf.
0: Here?
2: No, left. Here? No, left.
0: Up. This is making great radio. There,
2: there, there should be a fourth doctor guy.
0: No, there's a program guy. Oh, it's going to be
2: easy. to goodness. Oh, it was, it was so close to finding out.
0: Yeah. God, it's just... David Lodge.
2: No, don't look it up.
0: Why? Because, because I'm it Because either. Jr
2: wants to look it up in the book.
0: Yeah, but the <laughs> thing about it is. I can look it up, and then I will know, and oh. Matt still won't, and he's the one who's having kittens over this. So, do you want to know who came in second place? Now Matt's looking again, he won't be written on the DVD. they will have
2: an interview. This
0: They'll is... If... No, I don't know if he is on there. Okay.
2: Okay.
0: Well, it'll be on the inside of the DVD. Oh, my God. It's Gabriel Wolf! There we go. Can Why, we didn't just... we...
2: Why didn't I put the DVDs in order oh, yeah. for this? Gabriel
0: Good on Wikipedia.
1: It's
2: Gabriel
0: Wolf. Shall we talk about who came in second? Yes, please, please, God. Right, there there was only ever two that were going to be first and second, and there's quite a big... Well, the one that came in second at first was winning, but then as the votes began to dissipate around various different iterations of the character, Roger (laughs) Delgado came second. Yes. Although if I'd have added your votes for Pratt and Beavers... Yes. To the Delgado Master, he'd have been a lot closer. So this is all your fault, Matt. I don't care. <laughs> all right. I prefer the Pratt Master. <laughs> <clears throat> um, well, what is there really to say? He takes what is really a pretty two-dimensional character and just turns him into one of the most memorable things that's ever been in Doctor Who, really. He's... He, he, I guess and we're all too young to really know but I guess that by (coughs) the end of season 8 when he's been in nearly every story and this is the viewers at the time wouldn't have thought oh my god not the master again Mm. but I think that by the end of series 8 those viewers who probably would still have been aware that he'd only been in it for a year would have just thought of the character as somebody who'd always been there yeah so it's a brilliant creation and it's entirely down to the actor to come up with a character who feels such a natural fit. Mm. Because the character is an imposition on the series. Yeah. The first six years of the series, you could never have had a character like that. Mm. Look at how contrived it is when the meddling monk comes back in the Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah. And brief, contrived and brief. You could never have done something like that before the Doctor is stuck on Earth and yet by the time you get to the end of series 8 it feels not only natural that you've got a recurring character like that Mm -hmm. but you've kind of completely forgotten that Doctor Who was ever out among the stars and in a different place and time Mm -hmm. every week Mm -hmm. because it just feels like this is what the series has always been about Mm -hmm. or at least that's how I imagine it was a felt, but obviously I was like three at the time or something and you two were just eggs weren't you Really
1: good. Uh, oh, in yeah, fact, that really no, he, his appearance would have coincided with my birth.
2: Mm. Wow, is that a sign?
1: Knows. <laughs> is that a
2: moment? <laughs> I think it's tied up with it's also tied up with how well we know the cast got along and what we know. The fact that Delgado, I've never seen him in an interview, I've never seen him actually. On screen, being interviewed. So, so all you get these is mysterious. the character. So all you get is the character, but also you get the anecdotes about the actor. From other people. From other people. So you see the character almost as a hybrid of an actor you know is terrified of water and is really nice and gets along really well and is really close. But also the character who's really evil. And that works with the But master.
0: you never get to see the actor being that. No. You only hear about that. Yeah. And I so that that's kind a, of...
2: But that's important, I
0: think. Because... But, but what I mean is, because you don't get to see the actor mm-hmm. saying and being all those things, yes. the character seems even more real yes. because it's not detracted from yeah. by the actor turning up on yeah. commentaries and stuff. Yeah, It's like if um, uh, Nabil Shaban turns up on a commentary track, all of a sudden that's proof that Syl's not real. Whereas because Roger Delgado never does, you kind of never get the proof that the master's not real.
2: Yeah, possibly. I just think that's that's
0: a really sort of sub subconscious distinction, yes. but
2: but there's also there's also the feeling that that it's it's sort of merged with what the other actors are saying about it. Certainly for me, and I think the Delgado master, because he's in it so much, he starts feeling like a companion or mm. a, an equivalent. And he stops feeling like a villain. After a while, he starts feeling, particularly when he's having a sword fight in the Sea Devils. It doesn't feel like he's trying to take over the universe. It feels like much like missing He's having a bit of fun. He's having a bit of fun with the Doctor, and the Doctor feels like the Doctor's having a bit of fun with him. So it's it's kind of that's what's distinctive about the Delgado Master, and that's entirely that's partly from the way he's presented on screen, but partly from what you know about the relationship between Pertwee and him. And the friendship that he has with. He's the rest kind of the playful
0: crew. from the start when he sets that trap yes, in the yeah. um, tower at the start of Terror of the Autons. Yeah. Let's face it, echoing through as well what we've just been through
1: with Missy trying to stay his friend and become yeah. his friend. Yeah. That all echoes through. That
2: all comes from the. Well, that's probably why the only master wasn't quite highly as highly voted because Missy does pick up what makes Delgado distinctive mm. and then takes mm. a spin on it. Mm. Whereas Ainley is just an insane villain for most of it. Quite nicely played, I think, yeah. at times and with sort of black humour. But it's ne- it, it never gets that kind of... You always get the impression with Ainley and again it's tied in with how the actor seems to be seen by the performers as he's a bit of an oddball, a bit of an outsider, mm. a, a bit sort of... A bit sort of antagonistic to to or grumpy, and that's what you get with the Ainley
0: Master. But you also got to look at the schemes, right? Anthony Ainley Master, the schemes are ridiculous, over convoluted, filled with so many sort of potential pitfalls. Yes. Whereas the Delgados ones. (laughs) well the Delgado ones tend to be right here's a peace conference if we can get this peace conference to mess up the world will go at war and I will inherit it's yeah, relatively
2: he, do, he does kind of layer things on top of that as well to oh, make the stories he... carry on
0: <clears throat> oh yeah yeah but and say he... you look at um, Terror of the Autons the plot itself is as simple as hit the plot as in his plan yes you get the Autons to kill everybody you inherit yes it's they're very yeah. is. There's lots of silly stuff that goes on top, mm. but the actual plans are very straightforward. Yeah. Axons. Bring the axons in, they destroy everybody on the earth, I inherit. Mm. His plans are very simple by comparison, whereas then Ainley comes along and it's like, well, I stopped somebody signing the Magna Carta, and... <sighs> What? And well, yeah, you focused on you focused on the more ridiculous ones. Yeah, but look at Castrovalva. It's like, well, maybe the doctor will come to this imaginary place that I made up.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, well, Mark of the Rani. Maybe if
2: I stand in the field dressed as a scarecrow, something might happen. And Legopolis even it's like. Lugopolis well, L- and Castrovalva get a slight pass because they're very kind of conceptual. And so when, well, co- conceptual, when, coincidence, but... uh, when coincidence has happened in Lugopolis and Castrabalva, you kind of suspend disbelief because
0: the whole story is
2: sort of well, yes, about, but about I'm, concepts rather than
0: stories. I'm not talking about... Mark Adirani, you yeah, don't but I'm... suspend disbelief. Well, he doesn't really have a plan. Mm. But I'm not talking about whether you believe in the plans or not. I'm mm. talking about the level of convolution. Yes. And uh, Delgado Master, his plans, they have... There are convoluted side... Yeah projects but the plans themselves yeah. are fairly simple
2: for me it was he was and we're talking about Ainley, i'm talking about Ainley at the moment for me Ainley was strongest in survival because he perfectly fitted into this sort of story of survival and he was desperate and he was <coughs> sort of isolated
0: and I again think though, i think that would have been... became more but again i think that would have been better as a different character it seems to me that the masters the character there just for the sake of having Ainley in
2: Yes, but I think it works with particularly with Amy's master. I think Amy's master has this kind of isolated he's not part of the team. I think Delgado's master is part of the team. And Missy was part of the team and became part of the team in the end.
0: Oh, you mean the main team?
2: Well, but like the TARDIS crew. So Delgado is is a de facto companion in that. But within that the season, fiction the way he's presented. <laughs> and in the and in the fiction there's a slight blurring, I think he's always sort of he ends the story by working with the doctor quite often and and sort of and sort of you know collaborating with unit whereas ainley's master is always against ainley's master in survival that's the sort of the, yeah, the, the ultimate still doesn't Aynley mean story. that
0: he's the right character to be doing that thing at the end of the story it just means it suits his version of that character better than it would suit somebody else's version of that character i don't know that I I always thought the master turning I I don't think he's bad in it Mm. but I think the master turning up in survival is one of those why moments that you occasionally get do you want to move on to number one okay because Simon looks a bit like he's flagging (laughs) it's not going to be a surprise then we all know who's at number one right Solomon (laughs) Davros Davros which Davros or are we just Davros Davros is a character okay Whereas every time the Master regenerates, he becomes a new character. Yeah, okay. So Davros is just one. But let's face it, we all know that everybody was it's really Michael voting Wisher. for Michael yeah.
2: Wisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again... Oh, Michael Wisher with with a bit of um, new guy as well. Julian, Julian. Bleach. Yeah. I yeah,
0: think I, think, I think... Yeah, but actually, a couple of people said, no, I don't like the new guy. Right.
1: Oh, really? Yeah, yeah whereas
0: bedroom. I think Julian Bleach, especially in... Um, the Darling two-parter in series nine, which is Magician's familiar, Apprentice, yeah, is, yeah, was astonishing. Mm. But mm. yeah, it goes back to Michael Wisher, mm. and again, it's the quiet villain. On the page, it's not necessarily that performance, mm. but it's because Michael Wisher decides on those acting choices yeah. that that turn that character into who he is, mm. Mm. because. You know, I don't find Davros necessarily written that differently from, for example, as I've spoken about before, Omega or Sutek. Omega, Sutek, Davros, they're all given dialogue. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying it's similar dialogue. I'm just saying that's the the examples that we've had in this episode of the podcast, which is why I've gone back to them. They're all given dialogue that functions, but isn't necessarily poetic. But in the performance, Michael Wisher brings the poetry out in the dialogue. Michael Wisher's dialogue about the virus, isn't that different from what the Daleks were saying in Planet of the Daleks? But in Planet of the Daleks, it was...
2: Does that... I mean, so when Mm. you're thinking, when I'm thinking of Michael Wisher, of Davros in that story, it's all about that conversation. Yes. All about the conversation. And in that conversation, as a villain, he is distinctive because he is... He is, Conceptual. Enga- he is engaging with the Doctor. He's not just ignoring the Doctor. You actually get a sense at that point that he could change his mind, that the Doctor could convince well, him.
0: <laughs> once again, Davros doesn't think of himself as the villain. No. In fact, Davros thinks of himself as the great hero.
2: And at that, and at that stage, we might not think of him as the great villain. No. Because there's a chance we don't know what happens in the future at that point. Well, at that point in that story...
0: If you don't know Maybe. Destiny of the Daleks comes afterwards, yeah. Yeah. you might think that Maybe the Doctor, doctor has a chance decide. of yeah. changing Davros's mind. Yeah.
2: Which is interesting. I mean, that makes that makes Davros at that stage interesting. It becomes less interesting as he goes on and keeps bringing him back yeah, yeah. as being this endlessly resurrected and,
0: corpse. Well, yeah, and the Witch is Familiar is the yeah. one time that interest gets rekindled yeah. Yeah. because you think actually... Yeah. And that's and of course, then the witch's familiar is absolutely in keeping with Genesis of the Daleks in that it's all about that aspect of the character. Can the Doctor change his mind? And
2: it's and it's almost even more clever because when with the whole eye-opening thing in the witch's familiar, Magician's Apprentice. I remember thinking at the time has he convinced Davros has Davros actually turned over a good leaf and that's after Destiny of the Daleks Remembrance of the Daleks Resurrection of the Daleks so it's managed to get back to that feeling that people must have had when they first saw Davros
0: and we all watched that together and all of us in the room I'm sure of it we're all thinking the same thing are we actually going to see a Davros story where Davros repents Yeah. Mm. and then 15 minutes from the end oh no right yeah but it was brilliantly, brilliantly mm, yeah. played.
2: And with those two mm. bookends, that probably does make, justify Davros being...
0: Yes. Uh, and like I say, I think up, Davros is top because the vote for the Master gets split between, okay, so which one's your yeah. favourite? Yeah. I mean, some people had two on their list, especially Missy. Some people had Missy and one of the others. Mm. But, um, yeah, I think that... I think it's a
2: horrible design, Davros. I mean, that's mm. what people oh, talk yeah. about, is that... The frightened side and a half Dalek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Part of him, that sort of half iconic, half grotesque, It's almost a perfect summation of the Robert Holmes era, in that he's half Doctor Who and half Robert Holmes, deformed villain.
0: Well, except of course. In one, in one outfit. It didn't really have an awful lot to do with Robert Holmes, did it? Well, it was, it was Barry Letts who said to, yeah, uh, yeah. and Robert Holmes. This is a common misconception, is that Robert Holmes was rewriting Genesis of the Daleks. Most of the dialogue that people think Robert Holmes wrote, Terry Nation's actually stolen from his own short story that came out in the Radio Times in 1973. Most of the story elements are exactly the same story elements. (coughs) Um, And Robert Holmes was off-writing Revenge of the Cybermen. Robert Holmes didn't really do much on Genesis of the Daleks at all, apart from the scene at the start where the Time Lord turns up and tells them what's going on. Mm-hmm. The rest of it's just Terry pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, what were we in the middle of saying when I went off on that sidetrack?
2: That how it was, a summa- It was nevertheless, still a summation of the Holmes Hinchcliffe era. Well, what a Holmes deformed and Hinchcliffe? Villain in a wheelchair.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, but what Holmes and Hinchcliffe... Well, I mean, depends what you think of Harrison Chase as a deformed villain in a wheelchair or not. <clears throat> no, I'm thinking more really. greol-deformed um, Morbius...
2: That's sort of the well yeah
0: but no I was talking psychologically okay yeah so Harrison mm-hmm. Chase psychologically is in that same sort of you know a villain who's in some way either mentally or physically snapped
2: right yeah
0: um, this is what Holmes and Hinchcliffe did was Barry Letts and Terence Dix had been telling stories about the axons come and of course there's an axon that we see more of because you only pay so many actors to have speaking parts in Doctor Who mm. but the Axons are a species mm-hmm. who come the Daleks are a species who come the Ogrons are a species who on all these species come to earth and then Holmes and Hinchcliffe are no longer telling stories about species of monsters but they're telling stories about characters who happen to be from a, a different race than ours so in The Ark in Space the wirren is actually a story about Noah. It's not a story about the Wirren, It's a story about Noah turning into a Wirren. Genesis of the Daleks is about Davros. And yes, that is coincidentally, but uh, well, it might be never... seen as the
2: start of that. Genesis of the Daleks is the is the thing that gets the ball rolling on that. Well, sort
0: I in Space has already done it.
2: I think Ark in Space is, yeah, it's. It's about Noah turning into a monster. still. Yes, but. It's, it's, but that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. This is
0: where Robert Holmes' interest is. He's yes. not interested in races of monsters, he's no. interested yeah. in villains and yeah. characters. Yeah. So while Davros might have happened by coincidence, like you say, it's almost a perfect representation of what mm-hmm. that period of the program was. Yeah. Because even in. Um, the android invasion which is the most atypical one you still got Stigron yeah. and his right hand man and he still becomes a character yeah <clears throat> there we go anything more to say about Davros Simon's <laughs> just shaking his head he can't even force words formulate <laughs> like words oh. <clears throat> right next week we might do the top I'm um, disappointed Solomon's not mentioned Solomon yeah that was a great villain really that not vi- there's n- yeah, yeah there's not
1: many villains who I want to punch in the face okay well you didn't vote for him I did but did he disappear off the end no you... no you... didn't I no you didn't oh he
0: just disappeared off the end then oh so he wasn't even in your top five <sighs> he nearly was well you couldn't expect him to be in anybody <laughs> else's then could you <laughs>
2: I don't think he was in it for long enough. I mean, else, yeah, like, it brave was just like a Mayfly villain. He hasn't got the... the. He wasn't in it long enough ago for it, him to have built up a no, personality. No, uh, yeah. And he wasn't in it enough, like Missy, to build up a sort of a strong, kind of repeated mm, familiarity. Mm. So you're never going to win with Hitler. Why did nobody put Hitler? This is true. Hitler's the, the actual villain. <laughs> the one really bad villain.
0: yeah. Um, I promised to mention a couple of books this week. Okay. Um, well, I say a couple. Actually, one of them is two books. Um, one of the operators on K9, who was kind of a fan and then went on to have um, more of an association with the programme in terms of special effects, wrote a couple of books back in the... Oh, I've got some... Sorry? The Doctor's Effect. Yes, yeah. and The Doctor's yes. Effect's. Mm -hmm. So these are memoirs about working on Doctor Who in the sort of 1980s, really. Mm -hmm. A bit like the Mike Tucker ones with um, Sophie Aldrin and things like that. Mm -hmm. Well, they were in print, what, 18 years ago? And went out of print. And now they're available, I think, on a print-to-order service or something. But anyway, they're now re-available. they were written by Steve Camden. Mm. Anyway, I promised I'd definitely give a mention to that because... It's not really my kind of thing. Well, I don't know, actually. It's effects, so effects isn't really my kind of thing, but any kind of memoir about working on Doctor Who always going to get into some very interesting territory, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, well, those two are available on a website. If you want to find the website, it's 70.net, which is the two words, as opposed to the numbers. Mm -hmm. But they're worth a look at. And also Hayden Gribble from the diddly dumb podcast Mm -hmm. he's written a memoir of growing up as a doctor who fan during the wilderness years oh brilliant so that's going to be more along the lines of uh i guess in sort of fever pitch type territory i Mm -hmm. suppose Mm -hmm. where he'll be well i guess it's like a sort of you and who essay across an entire book i suppose but so he's that's coming out. It's called Child Out of Time, Growing Up with Doctor Who in the Wilderness Years. Yes, it's got that snappier title. <laughs> it's got a front cover by Paul Mars. Mm. Oh, wow. And Andrew Smith, who's been on this podcast, has written a forward for it. Lovely. Right. So, yeah, I promised I'd mention that. So, so that's a couple of books, mm. especially as we're heading towards Christmas. they actually both should... You see, this is the thing. Sometimes with memoirs and biographies and autobiographies, they'll kind. there might be an area of focus that's of particular interest, mm. but the bigger picture might mean that that area of interest is only a tiny part of the actual work. Yes. But I get the impression, obviously given the titles, that these are going to focus more on that thing. So sometimes you'll read a book... I'm trying to think of a good example, and I can't think of one off the top of my head. Sometimes you read a book about a person, a memoir or an autobiography, and the thing that interests you the most is not the story, and it doesn't necessarily spoil the book, that there's only a small part of the story, but you can't help being more interested when you get to that bit of the book. Yes. Mm. So these books that I've just talked about are the ones that expand that out to the whole book. You see,
2: but I heard... Somewhere I can't remember. It must have been a podcast talking about the John Pertwee autobiography and but how there's two aren't there. Yeah, Moon Boots and Dinner Suits.
0: And I think they the other one.
2: Yeah, um, but about how Doctor Who fans would automatically turn to the Doctor Who bit and ignore the rest of the bit
0: and miss the good stuff. And miss the good
2: stuff, but I didn't do that because the doctor who stuff is just rehashed convention anecdotes yeah, yeah yeah the actual stuff i read it for were the things leading up and the same with peter cushions
0: mm. oh yeah no that's, so that's not book. what i mean i'm talking yeah. about a slightly different thing yeah i'm saying that all, all, all i'm saying is if <coughs> if the the area of interest mm. is where your attention is naturally drawn to yeah. sometimes it's nice to have a book that just focuses on that area yeah. of interest Especially if it's not just rehashed convention anecdotes. Like a podcast, in fact. Well, yeah. yeah. You don't listen to a Doctor Who podcast to hear about Star Trek, no. do you? I mean, but pod- <laughs> pod- podcasts
2: are basically radio geared directly towards your interest. Yes. That's like... Radio 4 is all over the place, but at least, you know, you, you can construct Radio 4 out of podcasts, basically.
0: Well, yeah, if you want to listen to... Something all day while you're at work, you could listen to eight hour long Doctor Who podcasts, and you'd have a radio station that was just about your interest. Or you could just listen to one of our old episodes about, <laughs> and that would be eight hours yeah. long. Right, shall we call it a night then? Okay, next week, I think we will probably be talking about the top ten classic series companions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I think talk. it's. <laughs> I don't think it's going to spoil anything to say who's won, nor indeed that that character has got twice as many votes as the next nearest wow. one. But we'll uh, find out next week. Yeah. <clears throat> I'll be more awake next yeah, week. I'll do it in I, job,
2: have, I would have, I would have.
1: with do No, no, really? i have had the weekend of looking after the children on there. Oh, okay. oh, OK.
0: I was just really shocked that Adric got quite so many votes as he did <laughs> before you stomped all over my punchline by interrupting. Sounds fun. Until then, I was JR,
1: I was Matt, and I was Simon.
0: And we'll speak again soon.